Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as News Director at New Lines Magazine. Uh, this week, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Danny Gold. He is a freelance reporter, host of the Underworld podcast, and a documentary filmmaker. Uh, Danny has just returned about three weeks ago from Ukraine, where he was uh, pretty much at the contact line in Donbass. Uh, He's written some really excellent dispatches for Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, Tablet, uh, alas, not for New Lines magazine, much to my chagrin, uh, which I'll grill him for later. Uh, but Danny, it's great to see you, man, and, and I'm happy you made it back safely and soundly. And as I say, um, incredible reporting. I mean, you, you really kind of captured the human elements of this war, um, embedding with Ukrainian soldiers who in a previous life were philosophers or uh, import export dealers. Um, one of my favorites is the guy who specializes in the uh, hangover cure. What is it called? Alcohol killer. Alcohol which, killer. Yeah. Which I don't think you, he managed to convince you to take, but actually when I was in Kiev, uh, I went out drinking with John Sweeney as one does. Um, and the next morning we were supposed to go to Bordadanka, which we didn't end up doing, but I was uh, very badly hung over. And one of the, embedded SSO guys that we were with gave me this packet, this aluminum packet filled with like a jelly, which you kind of suck down like Lickamade style. And apparently that too is a hangover cure. So it seems like Ukraine specializes in curing you of raging hangovers, uh, which is comes in, in handy for conflict reporters such as yourself. Um, but listen, I wanted to, to ask in a more serious note, um, what you saw and your impressions from the field. I mean, obviously, the war has taken a turn, I guess, slightly for the worse, although I, I don't know, I, I tend to be a little more uh, cautiously optimistic. There's a lot of sort of doom casting in the media. Uh, it seems like we've reverted to the phase one of media coverage where Ukraine is on the back foot, Russia is making gains. It's this indomitable, unstoppable juggernaut of artillery and, and pulverizing uh, missile strikes and so on and so forth. But if you look at the map, Russia hasn't taken very much territory. There have been incremental gains in the east, also gains by Ukraine in the south and in Donetsk in the, in the southeast. But it, there's no question that, that Russia is doing a bit better than they were, certainly for the Battle of Kiev and uh, around the time of their withdrawal from Kharkiv, which I know you, you were, were at. Um, give me your impression just broadly of, of how you saw the war going and what, what you see as sort of the metaphysical attributes on the Ukrainian side in terms of morale um, doggedness, their sort of projections for the future. Yeah. Well, first off, thanks for having me. It's always, it's always good to talk to you and, and, and I appreciate you guys having me on. Um, and as for a hangover, I think, I think it, yeah, it's actually available in the States. It might be called hangover killer here, but I did have it not to cure a hangover just to try it. it. Wasn't bad. You know, I think it's got ginseng and all sorts of fruit extracts in it but uh definitely go for it because you the guy who makes it is a class act and uh mm -hmm. and i trust well i trust him with my life so i absolutely trust him he's the a daniel craig lookalike right yes yes yeah. i i obviously trust him with a beverage that that hopefully cures hangovers um yeah you know my impression of the war you know let, let me just give some caveats you know i'm not a military strategist and i'm not someone who you know, can look at a piece of artillery and know exactly what its range is and what it's called and what it's used for and all that sort of stuff. So I, I don't really do that kind of reporting. You know, I'm more just, just talking to people and getting a feel for what's going on on the ground. And that's a tricky thing to do in wars that I've covered in general. And in this war, you know, uh, maybe not especially, but it's definitely something hard to figure things out. There's always the sort of fog of war 
uh, that presides not just over statements, but over what's going on, on the ground, because you'll hear stories or you'll meet someone, you know, a soldier outside a coffee shop who will tell you that, you know, it's chaos and we're losing a ton of people and, and things are awful. And then you'll meet someone at the front who's like, yeah, you know, things are fine. Morale is high. You'll see soldiers all over the place that are super calm, but you'll be reading things about how, how panicky the situation is. And just trying to parse all that is never, it's never an easy thing to do. Yeah. Um, so I think it kind of falls somewhere, you know, as you kind of describe it. And you're right, though, that, that the narrative changed, right? The narrative changed a month ago. I think part of that was actually due to Ukrainian officials themselves that were issuing proclamations about, about losses and, uh, and sort of dire concerns, which, you know, may have been exaggerated for the effect of, of trying to get more weapons and more people, but it's true that they are taking losses, right? Yeah. You know, those, those estimates of losing a hundred soldiers a day. Um, you know, if you do the math on that for three, for a hundred, 120 days, you're looking at what, like uh, 10,000 killed around that, which, which seems like it could be fairly accurate. And I think the Russian losses are higher than that. Yeah. But of course, they, you know, aren't, I, th- I think, as concerned with, with those sort of losses that the Ukrainian officials are, yeah. and the Ukrainian people are. And they're so, getting most battle-hardened and uh, militarily capable forces that are dying, because those are the ones that are kind of filling the gap or, or going right to the front um, in Sviatodonetsk in, in particular, which has now fallen to the Russian side. I mean, to this point, though, because I was in Kyiv... I think I arrived just as you were leaving, and I only did a few days meeting with um, military and intel officials. And yeah, I mean, I, I want to be um, a little bit careful in how I phrase this, but the line I was getting from some very senior MOD people was, look, uh, things are, are bad and we are suffering severe casualties. However, this figure, which has been variously floated by, I think, certainly the President Zelensky and others, 100 to 200 a day. KIA before that it was 50 to 100 a day. Um, I heard that there was one day in particular on the front where 100 soldiers were killed. And this was one of the worst days in the history of the war. Uh, And it was powerfully affecting for all members of the political establishment, including Zelensky. But the idea that it's 100 to 200 a day, even as a median, much less as sort of your your average or, or worst case day, um, you know, in, in the course of a week is exaggerated. And um, what I was told by the military is that, look, our political leadership is trying now to get the weapon systems that are most crucial for this next phase of the war. And they believe that trafficking and catastrophism, you know, we're suffering a Stalingrad, we need help urgently, like yesterday, is the best way to speed security assistance. But there's a perception on the military side that actually we don't want to telegraph that Ukraine is losing this badly because that's only going to make the West wary of helping us. Right. You know, yeah. Fatigue of the war will set in a fear of, of backing another losing struggle, particularly after Afghanistan and America, American wars of choice that have gone sideways. Um, so there seems to be a dispute uh, within the sort of key leadership, shall we say, civilian and military on how best to frame this. Um, but I'm, 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 you know, you, you were right there. You were embedded with these guys. And, and as you alluded to earlier, some people at the front don't seem to think it's quite as bad as it's been made out in, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post. Can you can you give your sort of impression of, of that? Yeah. You know, I think I, I definitely think it's it's there's cause for concern. Right. Um, you know, it, it, the Russians are bombarding them with heavy artillery and they have a lot right. of it. And there's definitely 
you know, losses that are happening and, and, and people are getting worn down and you have experienced Ukrainian units that are getting sort of worn down as well. And then, you know, injuries, you know, it, it's, it's a real thing that's happening. Yeah. But are they making significant gains? And I think the answer to that question is no. I mean, if you look at how much things have changed, how much land has changed hands in the past six weeks to two months, as the Russians have concentrated all of their efforts on this area, and it's really not that much at all. You know, it's a very slow moving situation. Um, you know, partially that's because of strategy, but it, but it's also because they're not able to. Right. So, you know, Severodonetsk was supposed to fall, what, a month ago, six weeks ago, and it only has recently fallen. Uh, but so it, it is, I mean, I, I can't give an accurate representation because I didn't see everything with it and people are going to tell you what they're going to tell you. But yeah, I definitely think that, that you know, they're, they're taking losses. It's a grind. It's a war of attrition, you know, a 21st century one with, um, with drones and everything that goes with that. Yeah. But, uh, the, you know, it's not about the fall, right? I don't even, if they even get to Sloviansk or Kramatorsk, which is saying a lot, you know, you're not talking about this year even, right? We're, we're probably looking at, at, at 2023. Right. And I mean, now it is the case that Ukraine is receiving the heavy artillery, long range, multiple launch rocket systems, HIMARS that the United States has promised. I've seen evidence of this. There was a, a video of them. They're, they're now taking out ammunition storage facilities yeah. in Donbass. And there was one that was just completely, I mean, uh, James Rushton says it's very rare that we can legitimately use the phrase wiped off the face of the earth. But if you look at this base that Russian forces had maintained, it doesn't exist anymore. It's all just powdered flat earth now. So, I mean, these are, I know the word game changing is a bit of a cliche and everything seems to be game changing, right? But, you know, the long range artillery for the Ukrainians, particularly with the, the pinpoint accuracy of these NATO standardized systems does seem to be something that is going to perhaps tilt the balance in their favor uh, yeah. in, the, in the short to midterm. And unfortunately yeah. you weren't there when they, they just deployed these things to the field like this week. So it's, it's still relatively new, but um, yeah, I mean, I I think that's the issue, right? You can get very up close in a war and see something and say, everything must be as good or as terrible as what I'm seeing. Right. The macro level, it's a lot more complicated, right? Like we don't pay attention to Kherson where the Ukrainians are actually waging, you know, a a mild to moderate counteroffensive, but also in occupied Kherson, things are going up in smoke. There's an insurgency, right? Mm -hmm. They're taking out collaborators. They're taking out sort of pro-Russian occupying leadership. Um, This is not going to be easily held territory. It hasn't been easily held since the very beginning when her son was like the first major population center to fall to the Russian side. Uh, And one of the things I'm struck by, I don't know what your impression was, because you you were all over the country, traveled much more widely than I did, but morale still seems to be quite high. Um, you know, I spoke to soldiers returning from the front who say, yeah, you know, it's, it's rough, but we have no doubt that we can, we can lick these guys. I mean, if given the proper kit and tools that we need, um, I find that kind of remarkable given sort of all of the atrocities, you know, we, we just alluded to Ukrainian casualties to say nothing of the humanitarian costs, civilian casualties, children who have been, you know, subject to population transfers to Russian territory, et cetera, et cetera. They still feel like this, this war will be won by, by Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the will, the will to fight isn't going anywhere. Right. You know, they're still ready. If they had like, you know, just shovels and pitchforks, that's what they would be using. So that I saw no dissipation of that will, right. Everyone is, is, uh, is ready to go. 
Um, everyone is confident that they will win uh, in the end. There were a couple people who were just, I, I think this is the thing that happens to, you know, I've spoke to friends of mine who, who have combat experience in, in other armies. It's just a thing that happens at front lines, especially in, in trenches like this. There are people who are starting to get frustrated and feel like, you know, where's, where's the rest of the country? Where's right. all the foreign stuff that we were promised? We need this. If you give us this. And I think I wrote about it in one of the um, tablet pieces. We met these guys who were from, where were they from? They might've been from Liman. They were, they were, you know, policemen that had taken up the fight and they were a bit frustrated. They were like, you know, we're getting all this stuff. We need more. Anytime you're going to be lacking something on the front, which I think they were, there's going to be uh, expressions of, of, of frustration, which I think is, is what we caught a bit of that. Right. But even they were like, no, we're going to win. And uh, we just need this or we need that. Or, you know, where's the government right now? Um, with, with getting us this stuff and, and supplying us and bringing more people. Right. So there was, there were some elements of frustration on that, but I think you're going to hear that in any trench in any war. Whereas the morale, like the, the willingness to, to keep fighting is not disappearing, like even remotely. Right. If that makes and sense. I mean, you talk to experts in security assistance and I mean, as you would expect, this is not an easy thing to do. You can't just say, right. A, a government or a military says, give us X you have to train them up on how to use it. And more importantly, the logistics of deploying these things and maintaining them in the field. I mean, it's not like we just provide one sort of vehicle of a, of a HIMAR system, right? And that's it. It's all the ancillary equipment that goes into it, how you transport the rockets, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a whole kind of sort of assembly line process that yeah. takes time and money and energy to coordinate. And you have to have make sure the supply lines in country are, are up and running. Um, and I know that's frustrating for people who want these things immediately or want them yesterday and want them in much greater quantity. But you're seeing now, I mean, even at the Madrid uh, NATO summit, the announcement of new systems coming from, I think, the Netherlands, uh, Norway is now giving um, long range artillery, um, the UK, more, more of the systems they've already provided, et cetera, et cetera. So you see, I keep being asked, when do you think the West is sort of going to give up on helping Ukraine? And, and actually, I see it the other way around. I see there's been an uptick, an escalation in yeah, right now for material sure. support, right? Um, yeah. Even as we are, in, you know, at least in, in the media, focused on other issues, school shootings, Roe v. Wade, the 1-6 insurrection hearings. Um, I mean, Ukraine is not A1 in the New York Times anymore, where it's not like that every day, which is both good and bad for the Ukrainians. Bad in the sense that we're not paying attention to their plight, but perhaps good in, in the other sense that the West can sort of issue things on this, not on the slide, but with less scrutiny and less sort of sensationalism than otherwise would have been the case, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I, I think... you. you you know, you hit on something. And I think in the last week we have seen, you know, promises actually fulfilled mm -hmm. in terms of, of other countries that were giving stuff to, to Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, it, it does seem like there's a lot more ammo dumps and things of that nature getting, getting exploding in, uh, in parts of Ukraine that are occupied by Russia and even stuff happening beyond the border. Yeah. And a, a big part of the, uh, the issue with not just, not just uh, in Donbass, but in Kharkiv as well, was that, you know, the Ukrainians were there for, for the Russians were out of their range, but they're there. They're, they were still in Russian range because Russia had more high capacity right. um, weapons in, in that regard. And if that can be reversed, you know, it's going to shut down 
quite a bit of the the sort of um, the sort of Russian uh, advancements or or you know their their sort of uh, what they have that that they can use to win. Right. So I, I think we're starting to see that a bit more. Um, and if that continues to build, it's going to free up Ukraine, I think, to Ukrainian forces to really push back Carter. And I mean, you know, the other side of this, because everybody, well, not everybody, but there, there's still a lingering fear of escalation. You know, we're pouring weapons into Ukraine and that's only going to make the Russians, you know, redouble their efforts and it's going to lead to more civilian deaths and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the Russian way of war, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, it, 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 there's very little maneuver happening here. It's just salt the earth right? Just destroy everything in sight, reduce buildings to rubble, kind of force civilians to either be murdered or flee. And what the Russians end up occupying is, is a wasteland, right? So they're not actually gaining strategic um, infrastructure. They're not gaining territory that, that, that matters. And these systems that the Ukrainians are being provided will take out the Russian artillery systems that are causing this carnage. So know this is, this is protecting human lives, not squandering them or, or furthering their demise, right? I mean, that's the important thing that I think it gets missed in a lot of the sort of BS debate that we keep having in the West about provoking Russia and, and you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the tactics changed, right? Because you had in the opening days of the war opening weeks, you had these rapid advancements right. uh, by the Russians. You know, they thought they wouldn't face a lot of resistance. They thought they'd be fine. So they would cover a tremendous amount of ground, rapid advancements, and they just got lit up. You right. know, they, they, it, it didn't work at all. And then maybe a month and a half ago, two months ago, they recalibrated, pulled back. And now what they're doing is they're just completely leveling um, the areas or where they want to move forward. They're just, you know, artillery at levels, I think, unseen in a long, long time, bombarding mm-hmm. it, essentially killing everything they can, and then slowly inching forward. Right. And that's kind of what uh, what we were seeing in the East and how things were going right there. Yeah. There's also another aspect of this, which, you know, I mean, I I kind of joke about it on social media, but anybody who is a Ukraine skeptic or reluctant to provide as much assistance as humanly possible to this country, when they go to Ukraine, particularly if they go to Kyiv, there's a transformative experience that happens. I mean, you had Macron and Schultz go, basically then come away endorsing EU candidate status for Ukraine, which kind of was a big deal, particularly for the French who were floating this alternative model of, I think, the European community or something. It's kind of a diluted form of EU candidate status. Uh, and Schultz, I mean, notoriously announcing weapons systems to be delivered and then reneging on those promises. And now actually you have, I'm not going to try to pronounce the Panzer, whatever it's called, um, you know, self-propelled artillery that the Germans have actually committed to the field. And now it seems like they're doing more like air defense systems and so on and so forth. And this is all comes on the back of actually going to the country, meeting with not just the political leadership, but then touring some of these hell spots and sites of atrocity, Irpin, Bucha, Borodyanka, where everyone goes when they go to Kiev. I mean, in a way, the way the Russians have gone to war has only, I don't want to use the term radicalized, but it has incentivized even, you know, squishy Western politicians to want to do more to help Ukraine. And, and it, it's breaking down, broken down the, the, these, some, these sort of fears of escalation barriers that have existed up until now, right? I mean, they're getting things, you know, the fact that, NATO, that Ukraine is becoming a NATO standardized military without even having to join NATO is almost unprecedented. That's not something any of us could have foreseen even two months ago, right? But it's happening, you know? I mean, the yeah. difference between 155 millimeter 
shells and um, 152 millimeter shells is all the difference in the world because one is limitless and the other is in very short supply in Europe. Um, and that's, I mean, that's, that's a huge development for Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, every time they do something like, like bombing a shopping mall with missiles in the middle yeah. of the day or hitting residential uh, centers in residential areas in, you know, cities that are far, far away from the front line, uh, it has, it has that, that effect. Yeah. You know, people become more convinced. I mean, you, you speak to people, you speak to soldiers in the East and they, they, would tell you, you know, they were like when they Bucha or Pien Mariupol, like th- those were motivating factors for them. Those were things that really, um, you know, set them, set them forward and gave them the motivation that they, they wanted. They, they're still worked up about it and they're still fighting for those sort of reasons. Right. And, you know, that's going to be the same, I think, with, uh, with Western leaders and Eastern European leaders and they come and they visit and they hear these stories and they see what, what's happened to these people and, and what they've been through. I think it's definitely... It's hard to, to, I think, go through that and then not be motivated to help. Now, you and I got to know each other in the last 10 years or so um, because we both covered the Syrian civil war um, and all of its kind of manifold epiphenomena, the rise of ISIS and jihadism, um, U.S. intervention, strictly counterterrorism intervention, not um, counter-regime and all of this. One of the the... the I guess you're not hearing it as much now, but in, in the early days of this war, you know, Russia was doing the kinds of things that it was doing for a long time since 2015 in Syria. Uh, and yet it wasn't galvanizing international contempt. And, you know, there were SS gravely concerned had always left the dock whenever the Russians would bomb a hospital in Aleppo or a school or a bakery, but nothing was done. There was no security assistance to what was then the Syrian opposition, meaning the anti-Assad opposition. It only became a, a Western international security issue when jihadists rose to the fore, right? And I mean, you and I have had these conversations for a long time. Um, what do you think is the, 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 the real difference in these two conflicts and, and particularly the way that the United States and its allies have kind of engaged with, with, with either? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I, I've had this debate a lot, I think, when it comes to public attention. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm of two, two, two sets of mind, right? The first is that, well, you know, there was a war in Ukraine for eight years that, that Russia participated in that people ignored, yeah, you know, that no one really paid attention to. Uh, and, you know, this, this only kicked off like this because it was a, like this massive ground invasion that I don't think we've seen happen uh, in, in Europe for what? generations I, i'm including i think it, like the invasion itself was bigger than than anything that happened in the balkans so i'm including that too when i say when i say europe and um yeah i mean that it, it, it was something else right and, and it happened so quickly and it was so massive and the u.s got out in front of it i think with their warnings and whatnot so you saw i think a public that was a lot more galvanized um in the in the beginning and i think you know with syria too it was kind of a, a slower burn Mm. Um, and you, you have to you have to realize too, Russia didn't get involved really in Syria what until 2015. Yep, so September is, 2015. So this is four years after the conflict first started. Right. Uh, so I think there was already some fatigue setting in. Or there definitely was fatigue setting in with, with the general public and and politicians and whatnot by the time that happened. And it's going to be interesting to see if this war in in the east continues for four or five years, where people are at where politicians are at with support for Ukraine, 
not yeah. just the Ukrainian government, but the Ukrainian people as well, how people in Europe feel about them being there and whatnot. Um, you know, because we, we saw we saw a massive outpouring for help for, for Syrian refugees in the beginning as well, I think, in 2011, 2012. Uh, maybe not massive, but but there was definitely a lot more support than there was as it dragged out. So I'm, I'm really interested to see how, you know, if this is allowed to continue for the next few years, whether that level of fatigue with the media, with the general public, and with politicians sets in. And it's, it's concerning, you know, because already you can see uh, the, the sort of lack of media attention. Yeah. No, not, not, not that it's, it's faded away, but the fact that it, it, it's definitely waned since the early days. And that's just the way these things work. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, to, to try and answer my own question, because I've, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, there is a, a credible argument to be made also that, American interest in the Middle East, or at least American concern for the lives of people in the Middle East, is at a much lower level than it is for Europeans. And yeah. whether that's informed by just racism or our own kind of cultural chauvinism or ethnocentrism, whatever you want to call it, um, there it is, right? And there was always this sense that, well, we don't know who the Syrian opposition is, even though, I mean, you and I have been, we've been to the country, we met with Syrian rebels and not just armed opposition, but civil society leaders, protesters, you know, this idea there are no good people. There's, you know, there's no good actors in the country. It was all bullshit from the beginning. There were plenty of good people and they just happened to be the ones who got killed first. Right. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it has been mm, instructive, but also depressing to see uh, two sets of bookkeeping, I suppose. I mean, look, Ukraine has a lot of other virtues. It's a nation state, it's sovereign, it has a military. You know, the, the, the chatter at the beginning of the conflict was, well, the US is training for an insurgency. And the insurgency didn't really have to happen because the Ukrainian military uh, cohered and there was command and control and it's still very much you know, a going concern. Whereas the, the anti-Assad forces were ragtag and almost more at odds with one another than they were with the regime at times. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of sorry to see that Russia had to kind of climb up the ladder of atrocity. And I mean, in this case, I would say genocide for the world to finally recognize what it was, what it was doing uh, and, and to, to call it out for it. I mean, you still heard people in precincts of power as of 2015, even up until very recently, and, and God forbid they're still doing it, suggests that actually, no, Russia is on the side of the West in Syria. It is fighting a war against terrorism. It, you know, we should be aligning with it like we did in World War II uh, because ISIS and jihadism is, is the new Nazi scourge, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, we all saw what they were doing. It's, it's the, the playbook has, has been replicated. I mean, these attacks on civilian infrastructure are not accidents, right? They're purposeful. They're designed to terrorize. They're designed to demoralize. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we reach a point now where you really have to strain intellectual and emotional credulity to, to make the case that Putin is anything other than just a fucking monster, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we saw a lot of these same tactics that were, that were developed, you could say, in Syria. And we know they tested like a lot, their weapon systems there. Right. Yeah, totally. Like, that was a, that was a big thing as well. I mean, it's interesting too, to think about like, you know, I, I definitely think that, that, that there's elements of, of, of what you said too, you know, when it comes to racism and, 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 and uh, state armies versus whatever else was going on, but also the U S has this history in the middle East, right. Of, of, yeah. of 
things that haven't gone so well. And I think that definitely played a role in it. I don't want to make excuses, but I think that played a role in it as well. Whereas in, you know, Eastern Europe, unlike I think in a large part of the world, it actually still is seen as this sort of beacon of hope and freedom, you know? And that was actually, uh, I, I don't know, it, it was, it was, I, I was aware of that, but the way that it's still perceived um, when you're face to face with it in places like Ukraine, uh, even in Poland and other places along that, along that, that border with Russia, um, you know, it, it's still looked on as this, this, this force that could be a force for good. Mm-hmm. So I think that that plays into it um, as well. And yet, you, but you still had a lot of mythology, which I mean, I, I've said that Ukraine has debunked decades of assimilated propaganda and nonsense in the space of about four months, right? Number one, that Ukraine, like it or not, is somehow still a cultural vassal of the Russian Empire, you know, that they are this fraternity that's inseparable. And, you know, and and, I, I mean, you see it now. I mean, for them, even getting candidate status in the European Union is a return home, right, to their European roots as against Russia's, whatever you want to call it, Eurasian sort of heritage. Um, And also that, you know, the Russian military is 10 feet tall. That's something that kind of was built up over time and particularly because of the intervention in Syria, which was successful. I mean, it was um, heralded, well, not heralded, I I guess, but sort of dismissed by uh, American non-interventionists as it was going to be a quagmire for Putin. It wasn't a quagmire. It was, he destroyed the Free Syrian Army and particularly the Western-backed elements of it. Um, but it also gave this false perception that, well, if Russia can do this and save Assad's bacon, then it can just steamroll over, you know, a, a, a relatively smaller military and country such as Ukraine. And then the opposite turned out to be the case, right? I mean, look at how the Ukrainians have fought and look at how they have defied a lot of the uh, sort of uh, predictions that were made by the military and analytical community about their capabilities versus Russians, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I, it was just, uh, I think, one blunder after another, too, from, from Russian strategic planning. Yeah. Right. If they had concentrated all their forces in the east and gone about this in, in a different way, who knows? They could have done better. But it definitely looks, you know, it, it was just one having to pull back from Kiev, having to pull back from Kharkiv. They're definitely not, I think, the force that 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 uh, a lot of people thought they were in that yeah. way. And you can kind of I mean, going back to your thing about the, the cultural aspects of it, too. You know, you look at, at, at Maidan in, in 2013, 2014, and I, I still met plenty of, of soldiers who were either there or motivated by it, or even that saw them go fight in the East for years and then, and then joined up. You know, there was, there was a movement for a reason, and, and the reason was that the people didn't want to go back towards Russia. They didn't want to go back towards the Soviet Union influence, right? right. They wanted to go towards the West. They saw that as a ways as a way of having a better future that's essentially what it what it came down to that's why they wanted him out that's why they that's why they were protesting that's why they were they were ready to die in the streets over there and this is i think i mean to me in my haphazard analysis this seems like an extension of that you know they're doing this because well first of all they they don't want russia to to come back they don't want them to take over they want to live as a free people but they also they want to go towards they see that western european they see that as as a better hope for their country mm-hmm. and a better future for their country. And they'll tell you that too, when you start talking about it, like that's, um, and, and since Maidan, I mean, Russia's only sought to 
push more Ukrainians who might have been in the middle or, or undecided towards that belief. Right. You know, as they've as they first invaded in 2014 and first annexed land there. It's only progressed further and further and further. And then even people who were still, you know, it, it, more and more people were leaning towards this, this anti-Russian mentality and towards the West. And then after February 24th, it only, you know, I think it's like, like 90%, more than 90% of the people now um, want them out. So yeah, it's it just one mistake after another, both uh, strategically, militarily, and 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 what do you what do you want to call it? culturally soft power? However you want to phrase that. Well, you know, Putin is sort of the master of the self fulfilling prophecy. He he bangs on about NATO expansion, and that could just be a line, not the truth. But look what happens: Finland and Sweden now joining. Yeah. NATO. Um, well done. He talked about you know the hatred for the Russian speaking peoples and and you know Russian culture inside Ukraine. Well, that wasn't a thing. It wasn't even a thing after Crimea and Donbass in 2014. I mean, you go to Kiev 2014-2015, people were still speaking Russian. Now you go to Kiev and it's actually frowned upon to speak Russian, you know. Um people are speaking Ukrainian. They are they are reinvesting in their own cultural heritage in a way that frankly is, you know, Putin could have avoided that entirely without you know, blundering in and trying to wage this war of conquest. So, I mean, that's the other side of it too. It's, it's we, we give too much credit to the Russian government and to him in particular as a dictator, right? Like he pulls yeah. this crazy shit. He blows up, you know, storage facilities, ammunition depots. He Novichuk's defectors. He irradiates other defectors on European soil. We think that he's this Bond villain. Um, but it turns out he's not. That He's quite sort of short-sighted in his thinking. Uh, yeah, accomplishing all the opposite of, of, of the goals exactly. that I had set out essentially exactly. the past the past four months. That's all that's all he's done. And yet for all that, I, paradoxically, I guess, he's still now, I mean, NATO has come away and described Russia as its foremost international security threat. Um, yet again, after NATO has spent the last 20 years fighting the war on terror or being an accomplice to fighting the war on terror. Uh, and so, you know, we still have to deal with the Russia issue. Um, I want to ask you something else too. You know, I don't know if, if some, this is something you've been kind of thinking about because you, you actually spent more um, continuous time in Ukraine than I did. But every time I leave and I come back to America, um, just by opening the newspaper, turning on the television and seeing whatever inanities now define American culture and our kind of political cycle, Donald Trump throwing his lunch against the wall, ketchup dripping down the sides or lunging for his uh, Secret Service agent driver and telling him to go back to the Capitol and all this stuff. You kind of get the sense that, like, we're the declining power. We're, we're the failing Western state. And Ukraine is, is sort of the center of gravity for a host of things. Right. I mean, and this comes out in your reporting, which is, you know, why I, I think I was drawn to it so much is you 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 highlight ordinary people caught up in extraordinary circumstances um, with who do what they have to do, go to war, put their lives on the line for their country uh, at great cost or, and sacrifice, and yet do it with humor, do it with uh, you know, a sense of irony. Um, uh, they're very gracious and, and, and um, thankful of Western support. When they see you, an American journalist, you know, they, they want to tell their stories. I try to kind of um, transmute some of these virtues, I guess, to the American context. And I keep failing, I keep coming up short. Like if, if God forbid the United States were invaded by a hostile power, 
you know, all things being equal here, how would we respond to it? I mean, how, how many people in our country would, would basically align with the invading occupying force these days? You know, we can't even agree on the most rudimentary set of facts. So this idea of, you know, upwards of 90% of, of, a, of a country having total social cohesion and unity of vision and purpose, to me, it's, it's almost mind boggling, right? Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm being too masochistic. I mean, I'm running no, down my own country too much, but. No, you know, I, I, um, I, I think they're as, as crazy as it sounds, what I found in Ukraine that's not here and with Ukrainian people is that there's a lot of hope there right now for the future, yeah. even with everything being destroyed. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not trying to, to gloss over all the horrific stuff that's happening there and the destruction and how intense and, and, and lengthy and harrowing the rebuilding process is going to be. But there's a hope there, I think, for the future and that things are going to get better for the country, uh-huh. even better than they were before Russia invaded. You know, I was actually like randomly talking to a Ukrainian-American guy, well, Ukrainian immigrants in a bar in Brooklyn this weekend who I met at like three o'clock in the morning, bumming a cigarette off of. And, um, he, you know, he was talking about the, the, the silver lining of the war, which sounds like a, a crazy thing to say. But he was like, look, you know, there, there, there was, you know, some garbage in the country in terms of like, you know, corruption other issues and i feel like we're like there's such a unity now and there's a there's a push no one's going to tolerate that anymore when this war is over right. we're going to get rid of all that and it brought all of us together in a way that was only made possible through this conflict and you know again he wasn't trying to you know he's still worried about his family and his friends he wasn't trying to gloss over the horrificness of the of the war but he was talking about how this has been a, a sort of uniting moment and how he's hopeful for where things will go when the war is over. And, uh, you know, I try not to get to be a doomer about, about the U S and, and where the country's at right now. I try to, I think these sort of, um, constant, you know, Twitterisms of like the downfall of the country and, and proclamations of civil war and everything's awful and everything's horrible sort of stuff is, a, is, a bit overdone and 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 melodramatic um as it compares to to a lot of the world but you know sometimes these days uh, yeah some of that stuff creeps into creeps into my mind as well and it's hard to be like well things are gonna turn around you know yeah uh, i mean I, I can't tell if if there has been a sort of degeneration of just kind of mass american psychology and epistemology or um technology has just made the sociopaths louder more organized and has given them given them the ability to find each other a lot faster than they would have otherwise had to um but i i don't remember a time you know i mean i guess i came of age uh and was aware of of sort of politics and and sort of broader national issues in the 1990s, right, the mid 90s in the high school, I don't and I, you know, things were contentious. You had the, the Clinton impeachment. You had, you know, uh, Republican versus Democrat and, and party politics as, as previously. But I don't remember it being quite as cantankerous and I mean, really just violently nasty as it is now. And again, it's 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 not even that the mutual hatreds that that get to me or, or disturb me. It's the, the inability for people to just agree on, you know, water is wet, the sky is blue, up is up and down is down, right? Like we don't have that consensus anymore. And, you know, 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah, you know, I I, I go, I ask myself the same questions. Is, is this all just amplified by social media and twenty four hour news cycle and all that? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm reading now um, American Nations by Colin Woodard, and uh, the premise of it is that. You know, the U.S. was or is actually like 11, yeah, 11 separate regional cultures or nations that, that were brought together in this in this federation. And uh, so I'm, I'm only, what, 200 pages into the book. So I think I'm like in the mid 1800s. And there's a lot of that, um, you know, not everyone completely disagreeing with each other and different different regions, different peoples, all that sort of stuff. But it's like you said, you know, I don't remember it. And I kind of wonder sometimes, I kind of want to ask my parents if they remember it being this kind of vicious and this whatever else, because they're not on social media, right? So maybe they, maybe they're like, oh yeah, it's always how it's been because they're not seeing like the constant day-to-day stuff, maybe just watching the news and whatever else. But yeah, it does feel like, um, you know, we're in, a, in, a, in the opposite of a unifying moment and have been for, for some time. Yeah. And again, it's, it's it, you know, the, the contrast could not be starker. I mean, you have a country that's... Yeah less politically developed or was presumed to be less politically developed, uh, was backward in terms of rampant corruption, didn't have the proper legal mechanisms in place for a host of things that we now take for granted, or we, I shouldn't say take for granted, I mean, (laughs) that we had assumed were kind of part of the historical process. And, you know, within the space of four months, now Ukraine is on a fast track to doing all the things that it couldn't have done before, because it didn't have this kind of consensus. Um, and it just doing it for the sake of, of expediency, right? And because it, it wants to be part of Europe, it wants to be part of these supranational organizations and bodies that a lot of other countries are like, you know, the hell with them, we want out, right? They want it. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard because, you know, one of the reasons I want to keep the focus on Ukraine, apart from just the importance of it all, I mean, the largest land wars in, in Europe since World War II, um, it is inspiring. It, it gives you a sense of optimism in an otherwise very pessimistic landscape. Uh, it's almost like watching a country being born, um, you know, even though it's been around for, well, I mean, it's been around forever. But I mean, the, the modern nation state is being born in the ashes of what Russia has wrought. And as horrifying as seeing what they wrought is, it's gratifying to see what is coming out of it as you said your your friend uh, of the 3 a.m cigarette in the bar in brooklyn like the unintended consequence of this is yeah. you know is, is, is actually quite beneficial well it, it's the hope that people have for their future yeah you know where which i think is is unfortunately rare uh in you know new york and i'm sure in dc and in these areas too uh there it's very very real even with all the chaos around them even with their friends and family you know, dying. Yeah. There's still this sort of like, we're going to get through this and we're going to build this country back better than it's ever been. Yeah. And they mean it, you know? And uh, yeah. So I, I, it, it is a complete sort of con- like discrepancy between here and there right now. And, and that's a regard, but it's infectious when you're there. And that's I think the that's, thing. It's, it is yeah. infectious. And, and you don't want to really leave because you feel like you're, I don't know, you're taking the, the waters or of something, you know, of, of democratic politics, uh, which are now sorely absent or um, idealism. I mean, it's there. Yeah, idealism. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about your podcast. So I, you know, I was a, a guest at one point, one, one of our uh, first guests, I was one of your first guests. So you, you do a podcast basically about organized crime, right? Yeah. Um, 
and you kind of run the gamut and you had me on to talk about Russian organized crime um, from the Soviet to the post-Soviet period, but you, you, you cover it all, right? And this is another, yeah. I mean, getting back to core Americana, this is, this is the gift that keeps on giving, right? But yeah, tell us a little yeah. bit about it and where you are now with it. So yeah, we, I think we've got like 70 episodes. We had you on, I was doing a, a two-part episode on the Russian mafia in Brighton Beach, which was some Ukrainian swell and things like that in the, in the 70s to the 90s. Uh, and, and how that came about. But yeah, I mean, we're every, every week is me or my co-host, uh, Sean Williams, who's a great writer. And we do a different story. Sometimes it's about stuff we've reported on. So I'll do stuff on like, you know, I've spent some time in El Salvador and MS-13 and some stuff on cartels in Mexico. Sean's been all over the world doing stuff. So, you know, we'll bring those stories and basically tell, tell these stories that are coming out. I just did one on this uh, guy, Musiwala, who's this really popular Punjabi rapper or was, and he was gunned down in a, targeted hit that was like really professionally done in northern india about a month ago mm. and um there's all these ties to politicians and just gangsters and that are in canada and the u.s and all that um i'm working on one now about this fight uh so we do some historical stuff too so i'm doing one now about this battle i think in the 20s that was uh actually a, a russian jewish mafia mobster in indiana who took on the kkk um and sean what did what did we do God, we just, I'm, I'm getting confused, but it's all over the map, all over the world. Uh, historical stuff, current day stuff. It's actually, it's, it's really fun. I think people, people really seem to enjoy it. Well, I remember when, when we did ours, um, you would ask me about um, uh, Mishka Japonchik, right? Yeah. There were two, there's one, like the contemporary one, but then there's one from the twenties. Odessa, yeah. Odessa, and Isaac Babel wrote about him um, uh, to great effect. And what's great about this is, you know, I, I kept thinking back to this period when, you know, it looked not likely, but it was a possibility that the Russians might actually wage some amphibious assault on Odessa, even though doing so is going to be next to impossible, even without Neptunes and Harpoon and, and Brimstone anti-ship missiles, which the Ukrainians are now using to good effect. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's like, you know, gangland Ukraine, a port city, um, one of the most culturally rich cities in the country. But, you know, these are the guys, organized crime helped the Bolsheviks establish a short-lived Soviet during the Russian Civil War. Uh, and one of the lines that, um, you know, Mishka Yapanchik uh, was famous for saying to a guy who ended up joining the GRU and is a character in my forthcoming book, is he's like, you know, you, you and or, or me and the Reds, we have something in common. You know, you, we both want to expropriate the capitalists. We just go about it a little bit differently. <laughs> Yeah, there's a show I think uh, I think it's on Amazon about about his life, the the original Yaponchik. On like, Amazon, uh, fa- really? I think it's on Amazon. It might be Amazon. My my dad was telling about it. it might be Amazon. I don't think it's on Netflix, but yeah, there's. Uh, I think it was Russian language or Ukrainian. Yeah, there definitely is a Russian language version of him. Um, yeah. my my Ukrainian Russian language tutor would give me little snippets of it. Yeah, um, and it's very very well done. But yeah, if it's on Amazon. I gotta check that out. I had no idea. Yeah, I think it's on Amazon. I actually I want to do an episode on him eventually. But yeah, I was really sad I didn't get to make it to Odessa actually because it is such a culturally rich history and and especially of, of like you know the the Jewish gangster. And uh, yeah, the real exactly. dealer, which is like, like the, you know, the best. The OG Byerlansky comes from Odessa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd love to eventually do an episode on that. I think I, I probably will. Yeah, cool, man. Well, listen, um, always a pleasure to chat with you, uh, either for the public record or not. 
Um, I'll be joining you for that cigarette in Brooklyn in due course when I get back from Estonia, where I'll be for 12 days with my wife and daughter. Uh, it's their first time there. I've been living out of a suitcase the last six or seven weeks, which is why um, this is the first foreign office episode we've done in a while and maybe the last for another two to three weeks. Um, but anyway, uh, Danny Gold, always great to have you and uh, keep up the great work. And I'm sure you'll go back to Ukraine and I can't wait to see what you, uh, you report on them. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually really like to. I got to figure that out. But um, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure to talk, Michael. My pleasure. Uh, you've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, and we will see you next time. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.